Open your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis. So mark Genesis chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4. Genesis chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4. And we are continuing our series on how to study the Bible. And over the last, I don't know, three or four weeks, I have mentioned that there was something in a passage that we were teaching and we would define it by looking for the first time that word was used in the Bible. That's called the principle of first mention. The principle of first mention. And I thought it would just be a good idea as we dove back into how to study the Bible to really define what this principle is and then give you a demonstration of its application. And so we're going to have a good time with this. Now, I do know that this principle of first mention is sometimes um, mocked. There was a, a debate over the Bible and um, over the, the translation of the Bible. And a guy named James White had one of the debaters on his uh, podcast. And so James White is um, a Reformed Baptist. So that means he's a Baptist in church polity, but he's uh, Reformed Calvinistic in his, in his uh, doctrine of the gospel. And um, very learned man. White has done a lot of good stuff. I use a lot of his material um, but he's just really messed up on a few things. And so one of the, one of the points that one of the debaters had made was he, he used this principle of first mention. I think he may have called it the law of first mention. And White acted like he had never heard it and that it was the most ridiculous thing he had ever heard. Isn't that interesting? Now, how many of you have heard of the law of first mention? Have you any, any of you heard of it? Here's the difference. For us, our authority is the Bible. Let me try that again. For us, our authority is the Bible. All right, that's so much better. Um, and the way that we demonstrate that, that the Bible is our authority is by actually believing the words. Now, now that might sound, if someone doesn't you know, hold to our position on the Scriptures... They might think that that's condescending because, of course, they would say that they believe in the words of the Bible. They just don't study it that way. So for James White, his authority is not the Bible. And this is something that I have discovered whenever I've debated a Calvinist. When I was young, I would get into one of these conversations, one of these discussions. As a matter of fact, one of the first times I had this conversation... Uh, on, on Calvinism, and I'll define that for you in a second. I was uh, at a wedding. I was singing at a wedding in New Jersey. And the guy that, uh, that was being married, a friend of mine named Bruce, he had been influenced by another guy named Stan, who was a very wealthy real estate guy from Beverly Hills. And Stan was at the wedding, and then he, he was going to stay at the Waldorf in New York City, and he asked me and a buddy if we wanted to go. So I got to stay at the Waldorf in New York when I'm, I don't know, 25. It was cool. I'm just telling you, money is fun when you have it, okay? It was really fun. And so, but Stan had read a book called The Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink and had become just a full-blown hyper-Calvinist. And what that means is that they believe that God chose some people for hell and some people for hell. Or some people for heaven, some people for hell. That God created, so God may have created Patrick to go to heaven, but he created Jay to go to hell. So that means that no matter what, Patrick will go to heaven, and no matter what, Jay will go to hell. 
And to follow up on that, that Jesus didn't die on the cross for Jay. He only died on the cross for Patrick. And so you can see that we disagree profoundly with that kind of teaching. Amen? And so I would debate, I began debating, this is, I don't even remember what year that was. It has to be 30, more than 30, because I've been married 30 years, probably 35 years ago that that happened. So I began studying that subject and trying to learn how to answer, and I would get really frustrated because if they say that, that, that they believe this doctrine of limited atonement, that Jesus only died for the elect, that his, his death on the cross, his payment was limited, if they teach that, and, and all Calvinists do, right? If they teach that, well, then I go to 1 John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. The Bible said, says that he tasted death for every man, every man. Um, and so because the Bible says he tasted death for every man, being that I'm not the most intelligent guy in the world, I can just believe that he tasted death for every man. Does that make sense? And so I would debate with a Calvinist, and I would get really frustrated because, you know, in my mind, I think, okay, I've got the answer right here. Let me just show you what the Bible says, and surely we can come to agreement on the Bible. And here's what he would say. Well, that's not what that means. That's not what that means. And now I'm a smart aleck, and now I would say, thank God I met you. I never could have known what the Bible means if you weren't born. Or maybe it just means what it says. Is that a pretty good way to understand the Bible? Okay. So why is it that someone like James James Knox, James White, why is it that someone like James White would not have heard of the principle of first mention. And just remember, I'm not attacking James White here. White would be happy to disagree with me, okay? I think that he's done a lot of good stuff, and honestly, he's a man of God, okay? So he's saved, he's done a lot of good stuff. On this part, he's just wrong. He's just simply wrong. How is it that he cannot have heard of the principle of first mention? Why is it that when I show a Calvinist... 1 John 2, 2, that that doesn't just settle the argument for them. And it all comes down to authority. It comes down to authority. For us, our authority is the Word of God. It's our final authority. It's our sole authority. If the Bible says that we believe it, my mind has nothing to do with it. My opinions have nothing to do with it. Now, in his statement of faith, White would say the same thing. But what I've come to realize is for someone like White... His authority is not the Bible. His authority is Reformed theology. And so where we see theology through the lens of Scripture, he sees Scripture through the lens of Reformed theology. And it it comes down to what do you put first, the Bible or your philosophy? The Bible or your philosophy? That's what it always comes down to. That is why the principle of first mention was not, nece- not necessary or important to white. But it's very important to us because man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word. We believe every word. We believe he inspired every word. We believe he transmitted every word. We believe that he preserved every word. And that we can hold it in our hands and believe it. That's where we are. So let's look at this principle of first mention and try to develop it and see how it helps us. So the principle 
of first mention. And Psalm 12, 6 and 7 is the passage that says, The words of the Lord are pure words, tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt preserve them, O Lord. Thou shalt keep them from this generation forever. Isn't that wonderful? James White doesn't believe that that passage is about the Bible. That's convenient, isn't it? Isn't that convenient? How many of you believe when the Bible says the words of the Lord are pure words, thou shalt preserve them, O Lord, thou shalt keep them from this generation? How many of you think maybe that's talking about the words of God? Okay. Let's keep going. So let's define this principle of first mention. Now let me step back. Again, this is not an attack on White. White would be happy to debate me on this. And White's such a good debater, he would probably win. Okay? But that doesn't mean he's right. So let's, let's go on. So here's our definition. And this is from Edwin Hartle. Most of this information today is from Edwin Hartle's book, The Principles of Biblical Hermeneutics. Um, so this, this is the definition. That principle by which God indicates in the first mention of a subject the truth which with, that, with which that subject stands connected in the mind of God. All right, let me read that again. That principle by which God indicates in the first mention of a subject the truth with which that subject stands connected in the mind of God. Now, let me say this. Edwin Hartle didn't invent this method. This method of Bible interpretation has been around as long as there's a Bible. As long as people care about the Bible, they care about when does God say something because he lays things out. Let me give you the perfect example. How does the Bible start? In the beginning... So what do we learn? First mention of God, that in the beginning he already existed. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that a good way to look at that? So the first mention of God, what do we learn? His eternality. That's, we learn something from the first time God is mentioned. When I was in college ministry at Oklahoma State University, and we had an, we had an on-campus ministry, and so I would use a, a classroom in the college. We'd have a Bible study and whenever I started for the first time on a series, I'd write on the board that the, found, the fundamental principle of Christianity is this. And I would write, God is. God is. And the Bible never tries to define God. The Bible never tries to explain God. The Bible never gives us a definition of God. It just simply assumes God is. Amen? And so that's that first mention of God, and we learn something from it. So that principle by which God indicates in the first mention of a subject, the truth with which that subject stands connected in the mind of God. Now, A.T. Pearson gave this quote. Let me tell you who A.T. Pearson was. So when Charles Spurgeon, pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle, he's called the Prince of Preachers, one of the greatest preachers to ever walk the face of the earth, he was a Calvinistic preacher, um, but he was a Baptist. When he was getting ready to die. He died at 58 years old. He was my age when he died. And when he died, he wanted A.T. Pearson to follow him as pastor at Metropolitan Tabernacle because Pearson was such a tremendous Bible teacher. And so listen to what A.T. Pearson said about this law of first mention. This is a law we have long since noted and have never yet found it to fail. The first occurrence of a word expression or utterance is the key to its subsequent meaning or it will be a guide to ascertaining the essential truth connected with it. Isn't that good? So th this is A.T. Pearson, a Calvinistic Baptist, just like uh, James White, who holds to this principle because he was very interested in uh, dispensationalism. 
And white, I'm just trying to give you why people have different ideas on these things. White is uh, either an amillennialist or a postmillennialist. What does that mean? That means, so we believe, how many of you believe Jesus Christ is going to return any day? And then there's going to be seven years of tribulation. Then Jesus will return to the earth and establish a 1,000-year reign. The reason I know he's going to do that is that's the exact words of Scripture. Okay? He's going to reign for a 1,000 years. Satan's going to be bound for a 1,000 years. At the end of the 1,000 years, Satan's going to be loosed, and he'll have many followers. Jesus destroys them with the word of his mouth, and then the great white throne happens, and that's the end of the current heavens and earth. Why do I believe that? Those are the exact words of the Bible. That's not my opinion. Those are the exact words of the Bible. White, because of his Reformed theology, doesn't believe that. He believes that those words are allegories. And the only problem with an allegorical view of, of interpretation is you need the allegorizer to understand the Bible. If you don't have somebody who's defining what that story is, then you can't understand the Bible. It's better to do what, what the Bible says, and that is to compare spiritual things with spiritual. And then Jesus in John 6.63 said, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Compare the words of Scripture Study the words, allow the Bible to define itself. Amen? And so, because he rejects what we call dispensationalism, if you don't know what that is, go back in our study on how to study the Bible, or go back to our, our uh, where we were defining those things for our church constitution just in this past year, and, and we can define all those things. But basically, what dispensationalism is, it's rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's believing the Bible, and if you believe the words, then you understand that God has given different information to people at different periods of time, right? We're not going to sacrifice anything today. Why? Because that ended when Jesus Christ was our sacrifice. Amen? So you, if you believe in two dispensations, then you're a dispensationalist at least, right? You believe there's at least two. There's an old one and a new one. So because these people who practice Reformed theology, they want to reject that, why do they reject it? Because they believe that it's our job to make this world such a good place that Jesus can return to it. That's, that's the premise. How are we doing? Right? God didn't call us to do that. The Bible says evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The Bible says the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, deceiving and being deceived. That, that's the world. The world is entropy, not evolution. And can, can, does that make sense? How many of you believe that? If you don't believe it, look at your picture from when you were 20 and look at it now. That's called entropy. Now, Pearson was a dispensationalist. White's not. That's why Pearson cared about the words, and White would diminish this type of study. All right, so let's, let's dive into it. The first time a thing is mentioned in Scripture, it carries with it a meaning that will be carried all through the Word of God. There's only one speaker throughout all Scripture, although there are many mouths, only one providing, governing, and controlling mind. Right? But it, the, the Bible says, look at, look at Hebrews 11.1. 1. We're going to come back to Genesis, but look at Hebrews 11.1. 1. What are we doing? We're allowing the Bible to define these things. 
Hebrews 11.1, 1, what's the first word of the book of Hebrews? Everyone, what does it say in verse chapter 1, verse 1? Okay. So everybody get there? Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he made the worlds. So again, when God defines himself, the creation aspect is always a part of that. I said that God doesn't define himself, but when he attempts to tell us who he is, he identifies himself as the creator. So verse 1 again, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake. So there is only one speaker throughout all the scripture, although there are many mouths, only one providing, governing, controlling mind. So no matter when, where, or how the message is given, God is the speaker. And since there is only one speaker, and since that speaker knows from the beginning what he is going to say, he can so shape the first utterances as to forecast everything that is to follow. So I start that teaching that college class in New Jersey this Friday. And um, I was talking with the head of the college. He teaches apologetics there. And um, we were having this conversation about how some guys will hand out all of their notes ahead of time. He said, I don't like to do that because I like to build an argument. And I don't want them to get there before I do. How many of you teachers know what, what I'm talking about with that? Because sometimes you're not ready for the ultimate statement. You need to understand how we got there so that you can understand what's going on. It's like in math class. All right? You have to learn certain things before you can learn something else. What those are, I don't know because I can't do math. But I understand that's the way that the subject works. And so when I teach something, so I mentioned at Oklahoma State, I would write up on the board, God is. Why? Because that's the first thing I want them to know. Is that right? So I knew where I was going in that study. God knows where he's going in writing the Bible. So as he starts introducing words, he infuses those words with meaning that will be vital to our understanding of the rest of the book. Okay? That's, it's really fun. All right, so let's keep going. So no matter when, where, or how the message is given, God is the speaker. And since there is only one speaker, and since that speaker knows from the beginning what he is going to say, he can so shape the first utterances as to forecast everything that is to follow. And he is able to do that. It's amazing. Now, now think about that. Now, it, it's fun when a comedian tells a, tells a joke, and then at the end of his routine, he, he, I can't remember, there, there's, a, there's a term for it, but he, he calls back, to that first joke, right? And that's fun when they do that. Like Tim Hawkins with the, that, that is the worst, right? So at the end of his bit, he ties you back to that. And we think, well, that's fun. That's witty. It's hard to do. It's hard for a writer to carry a theme through a whole book, but, but we can do it. Lots of writers who have done that can do that. What God did was he took 1,400 years and 40 different writers. That's the difference between you and God. All right. God is able to do this in a very special way. So we can look at something that, that Moses wrote in the book of Genesis. And in a minute, we'll go and look at what Matthew wrote in the book of Matthew. And we'll find that the information that Moses gave us is vital to understanding what Matthew said. So really fun. Okay. So let's look at some examples. The subtlety of Satan. The subtlety of Satan. So go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. 
Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. How are you all doing this morning? All right, the Bible says, now the serpent. Now, is the serpent a good guy or a bad guy? Okay, do I have to go back to first principles? Is, is, is the serpent a good guy or a bad guy? Okay, now we don't know that yet in the text, but we'll learn that. All right, now the serpent was more, what's that word? Subtle. Than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So, this is the first mention of Satan, the serpent. This is, this is where he's introduced. And so, what is the characteristic that we learn? The first time the serpent is mentioned, the characteristic emphasized is subtlety. Subtlety. Now, what are we doing? I've defined what first mention is, now I'm going to show you how to use it. Okay? And this is really fun. All right, so the first time the serpent is mentioned, the characteristic emphasized is subtlety. So, all through the Bible, you will find Satan to be subtle, right? He's not going to show up with the pitchfork looking like your mother-in-law, okay? That's not, or just evil, all right? That's not the way that he's going to show up. Y'all follow me? He doesn't look like Anton LaVey. He doesn't look like some, you know, he's not, you know, Ozzy Osbourne or whatever. All right? He's going to be subtle. So now let's apply this principle. How does my understanding of Satan's subtlety help me to read and understand my Bible? I should expect subtlety every time I encounter Satan in any part of the Bible. Isn't that good? that's, that's That's the principle. That's how it works. So the Bible says, Satan is more subtle than all the beasts of the field. So I learned something about Satan, that he is subtle. So that means that every time I find him in the Bible, he's going to be subtle. Isn't it funny that by the time you get to the end of the Bible, how is he known as? The beast. Oh, he's more subtle than all the beasts of the field. Did I make that up? This is the principle of first mention in effect. All right? So, look at 2 Corinthians 11.3 with me. I know that you know this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. <clears throat> so, he's writing to the church at Corinth. He's been building them up. The, the books of First and 2 Corinthians are God's books of divine order. So in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, let all things be done decently and in order. So he's setting things in order because they're a mess. So now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his what? Subtlety. So your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So what is the simplicity that we have in Christ? That the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is that simple? That's simple. That the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ plus baptism is less simple. Is that fair? That the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ plus baptism plus uh, first communion plus confession plus last rites. Is that more simple or less simple? So what happened to the gospel? It began, Luke chapter 24, Jesus tells them, then opens their eyes that they might understand the scriptures. And he says, it must needs be that this shall be preached 
that Christ must needs have suffered and died and risen from the dead. And this will be proclaimed to all nations. Luke 24. All the way at the, the, the first time he's telling them what to do after his resurrection. That's the message. Death, burial, and resurrection. What is the first corruption away from that in the, in the, the early church? They added baptism to it. What is that? That's the subtlety of Satan changing, changing, changing. All right? So let's go back to First Corinthians or Second Corinthians. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth, what is that next word? What is the next word? Another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. How is Satan going to do that? He's going to subtly twist the scriptures. Someone is going to come in and teach another Jesus. Oh, Jesus is too kind. Jesus would never condemn sin. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Right? Uh, You know, the Holy Spirit, if you have the Holy Spirit, you will speak in tongues. That's not the Holy Spirit of the Bible. You follow me? How many of you know people teach that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not filled with the Holy Spirit? That's a different spirit. The Bible never tells you you have to speak in tongues. All right, let's go on. So let's test this principle. So go to Matthew chapter 4. Let's test this principle. The first thing that we learned about Satan is his subtlety. We saw there in 2 Corinthians that he is still subtle, even in the Pauline epistles. So let's go to to Matthew chapter 4, and let's look at the the temptation of Christ. Verse 1, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. You know what's fun about that? Do you think the devil knew that the Spirit led him for that? See, Satan thinks he's in charge. I think it was Martin Luther that said, Yeah, there's a devil, but he's God's devil. So, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. Now, can you imagine not eating for 40 days and 40 nights? I mean, I haven't eaten since yesterday, and I'm mad. And verse 3, and when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So now, here is Satan working against God the Son. Amen? Is is that what's happening in this text? So if I have this principle of first mention, and I know that Satan is subtle, what can I learn in this text by having that definition, that word in my mind? So let's, let's apply that to this text. This is really fun. In the first temptation, Satan's subtlety is revealed in his attacking Christ's human hunger. Let me just tell you something. It's not sin to be hungry. Or how many of you would be sinning right now if if it was a sin to be hungry, okay? In the first temptation, his subtlety is revealed in Christ attacking his hunger. I'm sorry, in Satan attacking Christ's hunger. Jesus had been in the wilderness 40 days, and before he had gone into the wilderness at his baptism, God had said, this is my beloved son. So that's the announcement that, that is made to Jesus right before he goes to be tempted. So what is Satan going to do? Satan's going to try and undermine the statement of God. That's what's going on right here. So let's look at how that works. Satan comes and says, if thou art the son, this is the subtle insinuation, did you really hear that voice from heaven? 
If you were the son of God, you would not suffer here 40 days and nights. Do you mean to tell me that God would permit his son to go hungry? You see? And and here's what we don't understand, all right? And and forgive me if that sounds condescending, but I, I constantly have to remind myself of this. Jesus had a body just like us. How many of you make bad decisions when you're tired and hungry? Right? Maybe all of us. Anyone heard of Jacob and Esau? What what did Esau sell his birthright for? A mess of pottage and chili. Some of these teenagers would sell their soul for some chili right now, I can tell. They're about to eat my shoe. So remember that Christ, the reason Jesus took on flesh and bones was so that he could be tempted like as we are. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. So he was, he was hungry just like us. Now, let me just ask you a question. How many of you think that Jesus had a lot of extra fat on him? I doubt it. He didn't have a lot of extra stores. So by the time this comes along, he is very very, very weak. And what Satan is trying to do, the other thing, okay, here, I'll come back around here. The other thing that we have to remember, this is so important. So I've got new shoes on. I hope I don't fall coming down the stairs. This is so important that we get this. Jesus did everything he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, he emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. He... He gave up the free and independent exercise of his deity. So whenever Jesus did anything, he did it through the indwelling Holy Spirit, just as you and I are supposed to do. Don't forget that. So here at the temptation of Christ, he is, he is a man, just like us. Very important that you get that. So now he's weak, he's tired, he's hungry. He's in a low state. And so now Satan attacks him. Hunger is the most innocent and necessary of human desires. The Bible says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word of God. That's not, a, that's not an insult. Here's an interesting thought. Man is not hungry because of sin. Isn't that interesting? Why do we know that? Before the fall, man needed food. Hunger is a fulfillment of the divine plan. Man must have food to live. Hunger is a God-created sense. And to feed it is to satisfy his purpose. Do you know what that means? I get to eat forever. Now, some of you don't have diet problems like I do. All right? Hunger is a God-created sense. And to feed it is to satisfy his purpose. God intends that a hungry man should eat. Satan knew when to come. He was subtle in his coming and in his insinuations. So, of course, I'm, I'm, this is imagining. I don't ask you to do anything wrong, but if you are the son of God, and if it is all true, then you can get yourself some food. How many of you know Jesus could make food? Right? Did he, you remember the bread and fishes? He didn't do that for himself. See? Here's the serpent's subtlety. It is not a sin to satisfy a legitimate craving, but it is a sin to satisfy it in the wrong way. God came, Jesus came with a plan. 
His, and, and this plan that Jesus had to do was to do everything in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it would not have been the Spirit's will for that to happen right there. He's trying to get Jesus Christ in his deity to do something he had not come to do. So he suggested two things. Prove you are the Son of God and satisfy your hunger. So how did Jesus use his knowledge of Satan's subtlety? How many of you know that Jesus knew that he was subtle? Right? So what did Jesus do? Jesus Christ quoted the Word of God because the Word of God gives us the will of God. So it didn't matter what Jesus wanted in his flesh. It didn't matter. Not my will, but thine be done. It didn't matter that he was hungry. God was going to take care of that. What did God do at the end of his temptation? Angels came and ministered unto him. God can supernaturally feed his son. He was dependent upon God because he came as a man. He did not perform a miracle to save himself because God had sent him and he was dependent upon God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and it is written is what he relied on. So here's the second test. Look at the temple. So back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 5, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and sitteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. And said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So a couple of things here. What, what's going on? Satan can also quote Scripture. How many of you ever had somebody quote Scripture to you to get, something, get you to do something that you know was not in the Bible? That was not scriptural. Satan could quote scripture. I wouldn't bring you to a holy place like this and tempt you to do evil. Come to the top of the temple. Now cast yourself down for it is written, angels will have charge over you. He quotes scripture to him. Look at his subtlety. You profess you are the man who is going to live by the word. Then throw yourself down. I'm giving you the Bible. Live by the Bible. That's not what. Now listen, folks. I've got this Bible display up here. Listen, listen. And if you will give to that, God will give to you. Press down, shaken together, running over. I just need you to sow a little seed money. And if you'll sow that seed money, God will bless you. What am I doing? I'm taking a passage that has nothing to do with my Bible display and try and get you to give money for it. How many of you have ever seen that happen? Right? Has nothing to do with that passage. So people take the scriptures and they use it in an evil way. And that's what Satan was doing him. So how did Jesus use his knowledge of Satan's subtlety? Well, Matthew 4, 7, Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So what is, what is Jesus doing here? It, now, is Jesus God? Was he claiming to be God here? Possibly. But I think what he's doing here is he's saying, I'm trusting God. God's going to take care of me. I'm not going to tempt him by jumping off the building. Amen? That's what's going on. He answered from Scripture, but in context. Vital. All right, the third test, the kingdoms of the world. All right, so let's look at the next part of uh, Matthew chapter 4. Verse 8, Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Amen? So let's look at how this works. Worship me, Jesus. I'm going I'm to give you all these kingdoms. Now here's a problem. 
Here's a problem, and I've heard teachers say this, and they're just wrong. People act like Satan was trying to offer Jesus something that he didn't have to give because Jesus is the king of this world. How many of you ever heard somebody say something like that? Liar, liar, pants on fire. The Bible says that Satan is the God of this world. The Bible says that, yes, everything will be under Jesus' feet, but it says in the book of Hebrews, we see now not yet all things put under his feet. This is one of the problems with that post-millennial theology that Doug Wilson that I enjoy quoting. Um, he and, and, and James White were talking about this, that the idea is that Jesus isn't king yet. They disagree with that. Jesus is king, that we're denying his kingship when we say that, that, that things are getting worse and worse. No, the Bible tells us things are getting worse and worse. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is not yet king of this world, but he will be, Zechariah 14. In that day, there will be one Lord. There will be one king. That's going to happen. Jesus is going to return, and he's going to return in power and great glory, and he is going to sit on his throne in Jerusalem, and he's going to rule and reign with a rod of iron, but that is not yet. That is not yet, and we know that because in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus Christ went into the synagogue, and he said, uh, said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, opens up the book of Isaiah, because he's anointed me to preach good tidings to the weak, to give liberty to the poor, that he, he is saying this verse, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And when did he close the book? Right before the day of the vengeance of our God. Boom, there's a a comma there. And he, I missed. And he, he, right at that comma, right at that comma, he stopped because it's not the day of the vengeance of our God. If it was the day of the vengeance of our God, none of us would be here. And so we understand that right now, Satan is the God of this world. And he's blinded the minds. That's the world that we live in. Amen? But he said, just worship me. Why did you come into the world? Didn't you come so that you could have the whole world as a possession? No. Gethsemane. No spitting in your face. No crown of thorns. No nails in your body. No agony. Just just a minute. Bow down and worship me and you don't have to do any of that. How did Jesus use his knowledge of Satan's subtlety? Well, he knows he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He set his face as a flint to the cross. He came to die. In Hebrews chapter 10, a body hast thou prepared me. In, in, in the blood of bulls and goats, you're not satisfied. You made me a body so that I could be the sacrifice. That's why he came. And he knew what Satan was trying to do. And so he did not bow. All this world did belong to Satan. He's the prince of this world and the God of this age. But Jesus said, I will take the long road to the cross. The kingdom of God will be established. There's nothing more subtle in the word of God than Satan's attack on the Lord Jesus. And this is indicated in the first mention of him, the serpent. So let's look at Satan's first words and we'll be done. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. How do we use this principle of first mention? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 now. Um, I mentioned this where we started our study on the book of Jonah in the best class and this morning. And whenever you see that word now, what do you think that means? Now, is Satan still more subtle than any beast of the field? Isn't that good? That's that's, That's a principle that you can use. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said. Yea, hath God said. So these are Satan's first words. So now we're going to learn something. 
This is direct opposition to the word of God. And Satan's business is opposing the word. What does Satan do? He opposes the word. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. That From the beginning, when Jesus Christ announced this battle in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, he announced there'd be a battle between Satan and the word. Jesus Christ is the living word, and Satan hates the living word and the written word of God. All right? This is direct opposition to the word of God, and Satan's business is opposing the word. So let's apply this principle. The special sphere of Satan's activities is not criminal or immoral. Men don't steal because of Satan. Men steal because they're thieves. Okay? The special sphere of Satan's activities is not criminal or Im- nor immoral, but his sphere is the religious. He is busy in that sphere where the word of God is attacked. In other words, listen, listen. Okay, I'm done. Okay? Listen, Satan's real busy in Bible colleges. Satan's real busy in seminaries. Satan's real busy in pulpits. Satan's real busy in discipleship. Satan's real busy anywhere the word is being taught. That's his realm of operation. All right? He's busy in that sphere where the word of God is attacked. He questions and contradicts the word of God. So this first mention principle gives me discernment. What do I learn? Look behind the pulpit and listen to the sermon. False teaching is a denial of the word of God and will be preached in Satan's subtle way. Listen to how this works out. I I could make a list of things that are undermined in the scriptures. But how many of you know that God intends one man and one woman? Right? God created Adam and Eve. That's what he made. Male and female made he them. All right. Well, that's not, that's just a picture. There was no such thing as a real Adam or a real Eve. That's just, a, what's that? Satan. You know what you should hear when you hear that? You should hear the hiss of the serpent. There's no such thing as a real Adam, a real Eve. Look behind the pulpit and listen to the sermon. False teaching is a denial of the word of God and will be preached in Satan's subtle way. When you find a man denying the word, there is the mark of the serpent. There are many ways to deny the word. Many ways to deny the word. What if you believe that we don't actually have the words of God today? So, so what, if, what if I tell Evan, somebody said they're never going to call him Ethan. They're only going to call him Evan from now on. So if I tell Ethan, you know what? All those words aren't really right. We don't really know what all the words are, but I know the important ones, so trust me. Satan. That's the hiss of the snake, the serpent. Well, what about when saved people do that? You don't think Satan can use saved people? Have you lost your mind? This is his battle, this is where he works. A satanically subtle sermon could be preached in four words. Yea, hath God said. Did God really mean that? When he says that that there's not supposed to be women preachers, that, that only men. Beth Moore says, did God really mean that? Yeah, Beth, go home, make some cookies. A satanically subtle sermon 
could be preached in four words. Yea, hath God said. It could also be preached in one word. If. Doubt. Doubt. First mention. First mention. That principle by which God indicates in the first mention of a subject. The truth with which that subject stands connected in the mind of God. That's the principle of first mention. That's how you use it. If you'll study your Bible that way, God will open up the Bible to you. See, the whole purpose of this is for me to work myself out of a job. The Bible says you have no need that any man teach you. Amen? I'm not your authority. The Bible is your authority. How many of you are saved? You know Jesus Christ is your Savior. Place your faith and trust in Christ alone. That means the Holy Spirit of God is living in you. How many of you have a Bible in your hands? All right, you have God's word. If you have the Holy Spirit of God and you have the Bible, the Bible says you have no need that any man teach you. And yet God gave teachers to the church as a gift. We're here to be a blessing to you and a help to you. God's called me to do it. But my job is to teach you how to do it for yourself so that you can teach somebody else. What are we going to do when they shut the churches down? Be cool to have about 200 churches in this area, all from people that learned how to teach the Bible here. Amen? Believe the Bible. To know it. All right, let's all stand together. I hope that you're born again. I asked you a minute ago if you're saved. If you died today, are you 100% sure that you would go to heaven? If you're not, make sure today is the day that you get saved. All you have to do is confess your sin to Jesus. I'm not your priest. You don't confess your sin to me. Go straight to Jesus. The Bible says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. We come through our high priest, Jesus Christ. We have an advocate with the Father, the the high priest, Jesus Christ. You can go to Jesus and ask him to save you right now. Just say, Jesus, I believe that you are God, that you died on the cross and rose from the dead. That proves that you're God. I deserve to go to hell. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Lord Jesus, I repent of that. That means I changed my mind. I've been wrong about you. I've been wrong about me. I believe you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Please save me. Realizing your baptism won't save you. Your church membership won't save you. Coming to church, putting money in the plate, buying books for my book table. None of that's going to save you. The only thing that will save you is Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Amen?